0: Welcome to Bloom, a conversations podcast about anything and everything. I'm lucky to be joined today by Dr. Zach Seidler, a clinical psychologist and director of health professional training at Movember, who also works as a postdoctoral research fellow with Origin at the University of Melbourne. Zach is one of Australia's leading researchers into male mental health and is an exciting emerging advocate for mental wellbeing, social connection and men's health. This podcast was initially named Eudaimonia, which is a Greek word meaning human flourishing, so it's particularly apt that we're speaking with Zach today. In this interview, we speak about mental health and the Australian healthcare system, notions of masculinity, and the importance of social connection to foster wellbeing and resilience during the time of the coronavirus epidemic. Just a heads up, that some of the content we cover touches on subjects that may be confronting to some listeners, such as suicide, depression, and anxiety. If our conversation today raises any issues for you, please seek help via Beyond Blue, Origin, Headspace, or Lifeline on 131114. Thank you so much for joining us, Zach, particularly at what is a very stressful and uncertain time for billions around the world at the moment. Thanks for having me, Nick. No worries. So, for our listeners, could you please provide a bit of an overview of the kind of work you do on a day-to-day basis across your many and varied roles and interests?
1: I've, I've actually just uh, hired a research assistant who now has to watch my day-to-day um, and they're kind of <laughs> they're kind of worried about it because it's, it's not your typical job by any means. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll try to break up my different roles of sorts. Um, since uh, September of last year, I've been working um, at Movember, whose offices are in Richmond, um, in Melbourne. Uh, a beautiful office that ov- overlooks the city. And uh, despite the fact that everyone thinks that they uh, only function for one month of a year, I can assure you that that is not the case. So day to day, I do, I work three days uh, at that office. Um, and we'll discuss, I guess, what, what I do there. And then two days I'm at, I'm at origin uh, uni of Melbourne, doing research evaluation, lots of writing. I write some op-eds. I write um, research related stuff, uh, uh papers and publications, and then I also do some clinical work um, currently uh, via Skype out of hours, um, telehealth-related mm-hmm. stuff, especially yeah. in this in this um, current climate. climate. Absolutely, yep. yeah.
0: So what have been some of the most formative or significant experiences in your professional career to date? I uh, know that you've worked clinically with men of different ages and representations around the country, from adolescents in Darwin with early psychosis to older HIV-positive men struggling with adjustment um
1: most formative everyone always reflects on like the first few clients that they ever saw Um, i it was actually later on that i really because i you know you find your feet as a clinician Mm. um and and it's a very stressful period and you can't actually pay attention to anything when you're trying to work out what you're doing um because you're so aware of what am i asking how is this going on and so you can't actually find your own voice i guess as a clinician and so things really started to to take off for me and to um hit home for me when i started in private practice and i had Mm -hmm. what turned into be a long line of uh, of young men with suicidal ideation and attempts um and so I, i guess the most formative experiences there was the ability for change was the um underlying motivation um to be alive and to flourish. Um, and yeah. I have always kind of seen myself in a weird way as a motivational coach in some right. ways. Um, mm-hmm. one of my first ever supervisors, uh, compared me to Tony Robbins, which <laughs> I took as an insult at the time. Um, but, but in, in hindsight, I think that, uh, many young men are seeking, um, a doctrine or a mantra of some kind. And so I've kind of taken it up upon myself, um, to be a type of resilience coach in some ways for them. And that's, that's really how I've pushed myself in the research world as well.
0: It's really interesting because I'm hearing some resonances with Jordan Peterson, not that I'm in any way linking in with you, but his popularity certainly suggests that there are many young men around the world looking for a doctrine or ways of living well and meaningfully. And it seems as though you're filling a gap in the market in Australia in this way. I hope so. I'm I'm trying my best to
1: counteract the Jordan Peterson effect yes, to an extent, indeed. Um, no, that's with, right. Yeah. Without any any misogynistic undertones, but um, I I have yeah I, I have had so many discussions about him and about this 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 vacuum I would say mm-hmm. um, when it comes to masculinity uh, in the Western world per se, mm-hmm. um, in that there is not a very clear idea about what masculinity should be. There's a very clear idea about what masculinity should not be. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I do my best to try to feel that and make it clear um, that flexible masculinity and that you know your dominant traditional norms of strength and power and self-reliance and stoicism, whatever they may be, are really mm. useful depending on the time and place.
0: Yeah, and to that degree, I imagine you'd find Peterson's work problematic, given that he occupies that revanchist articulation of an advocacy for those traditional male values which I think in a lot of your work you've identified as being the kind of root cause of a lot of male mental ill health.
1: Mm. It's a very, very complex space, and I'm finding that more and more. I'm very lucky that Movember is apolitical in many ways, yeah. um, and they've succeeded on the basis of not getting into the nitty-gritty of this stuff mm-hmm. um, because gender politics is a shitstorm and a yeah. half um, at the moment. And so I've I've kind of been very... Um, safe in many ways in kind of realizing that I cannot distance myself from that male audience who really actually needs my help, who are the ones mm. who are extremely disengaged, disconnected and angry. Um, yeah. And so I try to be a, a voice for them and to connect with them while also, you know, talking to the women and, and you know other community members mm. about the fact that if we improve men's health and wellbeing, we're going to better their lives as well. So I kind of you know, s- skirt around the issue and, and go through the middle. But I do believe that, that Jordan Peterson has not done a good job, I would say, yeah. at, at trying to um, bring together these divisions. I think that Absolutely. we're seeing a, a more divisive culture than
0: ever before. Absolutely. So before we move on, could you reflect on the unconventional nature of your early career? And I think you're under 30. But just to talk a little bit about how you're balancing work as a researcher, a clinician, an advocate, whether it be through your work at Movember or Man Island. So how do you, how do you hold these things together when, in our 20s, most of us are still finding our feet and trying to work out what it is we really want to do? That
1: sounds weird for getting it re- relayed back to me. <laughs> I, I I think that I um I've thought about this quite a bit. I've never had any doubt um about what I've wanted to do and what I've wanted to achieve um. And I was very lucky from the age of like fifteen, sixteen, I knew that I wanted to be a psychologist. I had no idea that this was going to be the path of sorts, but people ask me how this has all taken off. And I really think not having a plan B was very useful to me. Mm-hmm. Um so I think that's how it started. But how this has has kind of taken off is that I think that there are not enough scientist communicators out there. There's not yeah. enough scientist practitioner communicators specifically. Mm-hmm. So I get to do the clinical work and see people on the ground. And then I get to go off and, um, and research this stuff. The, the real key to, to everything that I've done is that I have a deep, deep curiosity, interest, and investment in this stuff. It's not a matter of, you know, it's not my day job. I'd, I've never seen it as my day job. So when people, you know, at the office are, are working nine to five, this is, you know, I think about yeah. this stuff all day long. I read mm-hmm. about it endlessly. It intrigues me. Um, but it, it is problematic in some ways, especially <laughs> now that I'm working from home.
0: Yeah, certainly. And your interest in men's health, mental health and psychology isn't just informed by your professional work and academic interests. You've spoken openly, uh, sensitively and quite beautifully in the media about the fact that your father died by suicide. So could you please tell us a little bit more about your father and the kind of man that he was and his influence on your life? I'd love to. So
1: I guess... Yeah, I didn't. I didn't. I was already going down the psychology path when Dad was unwell, and so I've had a bit of a, an internal, um, not crisis, but but internal discussion with myself about whether or not I'd be in this um, if it wasn't for what had taken place. And I think that I would. I think that it was pretty clear. I was already doing gender studies. I was already very much into the masculinity space. I guess it just uh, clarified it and and made um, my vision and passion much clearer um yeah. and gave me it gave me a dialogue but my my dad was the, the most the most incredible man and i think that he um he gave me everything that has led to my success really so mm. he was a general practitioner in king's cross um he pretty much started the um the methadone movement um All right so he was, he was in the cross in the, in the eighties and nineties when the heroin situation was booming. Um, and he had just such great respect, um, and kindness when it came to the, the homeless and disadvantaged and, um, Mm. drug affected. And so, um, I got to watch that from a very young age. I was, I was working as a receptionist at his clinic and I watched, you know, as a 14 year old people on heroin coming in and, and just, it didn't matter if, you know, he saw famous movie stars and then he saw you know a homeless man straight after and Mm. he responded in exactly the same way and so despite the fact that I've had an extremely privileged upbringing um, I really got to interact with all types of members of society and it gave me a real respect for and understanding of um, the fact that humanity uh, varies but there is something underlying which is just a respect for everyone's worth, um, yeah. that he really taught me, you know, he, he brought about the safe injecting rooms in, yeah. in Sydney as well. And he was just the best public speaker you would ever hear. He, you know, he, was, yeah, he used yeah. to complain that he would get up and, um, just talk shit for half an hour and everyone was yeah. waiting for every word that he had to say. I was like, none of that was evidence-based. What are you talking about? <laughs> I was going through that early twenties. Mm. Um, I know everything stage, but, mm. um, I'm very lucky that I got as, as long as I did. With him, I know that he was struggling for a very long time and it was the worst the worst period of my life. But um, I've taken it in my stride and I think my family has as well and we're here to um, grow and and develop from it rather than let it crush us.
0: And to live his legacy in a way by being able to see the humanity in each of your patients and I guess in the broader population, right, Uh, by seeing through people's circumstances to the humanity inside and the potential that's within them. Mm, Fundamentally. Could you tell us a bit more about your work with Movember? Um, because you obviously had a lot of really defining personal, academic and professional experiences in men's health and mental health. Um, but how did you come to work with this sort of iconic global uh, movement uh, for men's health? Definitely.
1: So I was finishing up my PhD at um, the University of Sydney um, last year. And I, it started out, um, my PhD, as a as an experiment into looking at why men don't seek help. That was literally the the uh, research question of sorts. And in starting out with that question, uh, it turned out very quickly that that was a um, very biased, um, socially driven um, response to what I was uh, witnessing. And so what became clear over time was that that was actually the one, wrong way of viewing this whole situation. And that in fact, many men are seeking help. They're just not getting what they want and what they need when it comes to mental health services. Right. Um, I think in many ways that is because uh, mental health services um, have been created, were created early on by men um, who I think were avoidant of their own masculinity and, mm-hmm. um, placed the emphasis on on female hysteria in the case of Freud, for instance, um, so that they could avoid their own neuroses and issues. Um, And so that kind of developed over time into a female-oriented profession with, you know, we've got over 75%, I think, of psychologists are are women. Um, And that's not to say that they can't treat men well by any means, but it just means that the whole profession and the whole experience has been deemed a feminine, emotionally communicative experience, which I don't buy. And so I um, started to look into the literature and then started to speak with men themselves who had been in therapy and and it just didn't hit the mark. It really um, didn't provide them with what they wanted, what they needed and really what they expected either. And so uh, the question was, should I tell men how to do therapy better or should I tell the system, um, how to approach men in a, in a more male sensitive way. And it was very clear that, um, it's not fair to continue to put the onus on men to adapt. You never go to a physio and say, and the physio goes, sorry, I can't deal with that elbow. That elbow yeah, is not, right. you know, not one that <laughs> I understand. Yeah. Um, and so what became clear was that I needed to find a way to, to, update the system to be male focused and to understand masculinity. And and the best way of going about that, I think, was um, to create a training program for mental health practitioners, you know, some form of continuing education, because there is nothing out there throughout every degree. Based
0: qualifications, you mean? So like online modules? Exactly.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, But even within base qualifications, there's nothing about gender anywhere. Gender competency is just not a thing that is taught because, it's believed to be general knowledge, I think in many ways. Right. Right. Um, and so man Island was really my PhD project. I just decided to market it because yeah, I guess that that's again, my, my dad's legacy is like, just don't be mediocre um, Mm. and, and do something different and, and forge a path for yourself. And so I didn't want to just be another PhD that grows, um, Hmm. Dusty on the shelf, and so I, I came up with a brand and I came up with a message, um, and I think that that's what um, sparked the interest of, of Movember. Who absolutely, yeah. So they you know, sort I, of
0: found you and and and
1: yeah. Came well, you. I was making noise, as right. you can tell, I, I, <laughs> I do that. And so uh, um, I kind of people. This is the thing when I yeah. reflect on how I am where I am, it's because I didn't ever really um, fall back on. Deference. I didn't, you know, I have respect for, for people, but I never really was like, oh, I'm a first year PhD student. I can't talk yeah. to this person.
0: And they are big claims that you're making as well um, by saying that there are systemic failures in the way that men's health is provided for in the healthcare system in Australia, but globally as well.
1: Definitely. Mm. But I think that the time was right. We're looking at a suicide rate that's just through the roof.
0: That's interesting because you're saying that the rate of suicide, I think, is three times for men what it is for women. But at the same time, it's a perfect storm because there are those systemic shortfalls in how we treat men's mental health. Mm, In how
1: we treat men, in how we diagnose men specifically as well. There's also, there's just all of these mismatching statistics that just sparked my interest. There's this really famous quote by two reliably German psychologists who wrote, um, women seek help and men die. And they wrote that in 1990. And I just it was so inescapably morose that i was just mm-hmm. like i i cannot finalise as well you know it's just so emphatic. yeah exactly and we look at the tiring. stats now and there's been it there's been a 10% 10 to 15% increase in the number of men seeking help thanks to Movember and headspace and are you Okay day they are doing their job as you know health promotion entities what is not working and this is what i sold i guess uh, to Movember in my conversations with them yeah. was you cannot tell men you know, you cannot go into footy clubs and just tell everyone that if you're feeling down, go and seek help and then just leave them there hmm. um, with a system that is not catering to their needs. And so um, I think that that's what what really got through to them and, and was a very clear uh, way forward to go, all right, we can now target. It's not in the clinical space itself. Um, it is in the the training and education space to provide something hopefully globally um, Mm. to be able to upskill a workforce um, that is going to hopefully again, be dealing with a huge increase in the number of men seeking help because they're, they're struggling. There's no doubt about it.
0: So how do men and boys experience mental ill health differently? And secondly, how are the kinds of ways of asking for help or indicating distress different?
1: Well, firstly, the word help is not often one that's used by men. So I can Throw that out there, um, mm-hmm. and we'll discuss. I think language is a really, really important part of yep. this whole this whole thing, and that's something that my my training uh, responds to. Um, but to start with the first question of how, how do men, you know, show and manifest uh, mental ill health? Mm-hmm. I think the easiest way, uh, the easiest diagnosis to to start with is depression. There's lots and lots of um, research out there, and, and one of my colleagues. Uh, Associate Professor Simon Rice has done some incredible work looking at the way that depression manifests in men and the fact that while there is the typical understanding that depression is you sitting on the couch, eating ice cream, crying yourself to sleep while watching a rom-com, you know, it's like there are these ideas of darkness and of um endless sadness and despair and hopelessness that the dsm the diagnostic statistical manual that all psychologists and psychiatrists um, look to uh, for their diagnoses that's what it advocates for Um, we don't buy that when it comes to male depression and that's from our clinical experience and, and more broadly now within the research and internalizing depression which is that i feel hopeless everything is very internal is mm-hmm. is tends to be a, actually quite a feminized response to to depression mm-hmm. men actually tend to show an externalizing response which is anger aggression irritability substance misuse mm-hmm. violence um and so what is boys being boys is actually often a cry for help and is misunderstood and is misdiagnosed. The amount of men that I get coming through my door with, you know, anger issues written down on a referral and then you, you deal with it for three sessions and then suddenly they're bawling their eyes out.
0: Is that because those behavioral manifestations are actually symptomatic of a deeper psychological issue? Precisely. Yeah.
1: society advocates for the fact that men are allowed to show anger, pride, irritability, And so that's what they show you know you get it you get a 70 year old grandpa who's just grumpy all the time god forbid there's actually something going on underneath that
0: that makes me think about what you said before about language and the importance of thinking about linguistic or stereotypical conventions or straitjackets that we put around men and the impacts on their well-being so there are ways of being or ways of behavior that men are allowed to express that anger or grumpiness substance abuse which will kind of normalize behavioral problems right Uh, without actually fully allowing men to inhabit and express or interrogate those deeper psychological ailments that they might have. So as a link to that, could you speak about the kinds of language that we use to describe masculinity and men? Um, And particularly I'm thinking of the terms fragile masculinity, uh, but also toxic masculinity, which I think sometimes contributes to that polarised Jordan Peterson view of the world and gender politics, gender relations.
1: Yeah, God, I have so much to say. Okay, let, cool. me, let, me, <laughs> let me structure this. I think, okay, there's two, two dialogues there. One is around the way that we address masculinity and what it looks like and what it sounds like and how to talk about it within society. And the other is about how to talk about men's mental illness and how to talk about what they're experiencing, what their symptoms are and what it looks like. For instance, the term depression doesn't sit very well with many men. Um, you know, distress or stress is, it tends to be, a word a word that that um right resonates a bit a bit better yeah, um yeah, the blues yeah. whatever it may be and that's,
0: that's bad days, bad Yeah, mm.
1: it, it could be due to stigma um this is the problem we don't want to perpetuate that stigma so if we need to push through and use the word depression you know so be it but i think there is definitely uh, something there when it comes to if men are experiencing that anger irritability grumpiness you know and that's just the way that men are gonna show their distress. We don't need to force men into this um, box of, you need to be vulnerable, you need to cry, you need to be emotion of, you know, a- emotive. I think mm-hmm. that um, there is a time and a place for that and they need to have that in their repertoire by all means but suggesting that we need to, this is what Jordan Peterson jumps on, which is the idea that we don't need to feminize men. We don't need to get rid of masculinity and turn everyone into a little girl. Yeah. And I, I have issues with the way he goes about talking about that, but I do agree that, that we are socialized differently and we have different responses to things. And so let's not pretend that, that these are you know apples and apples. There's, mm. there's a different game going on here and, and we deal with things differently. He draws on the testosterone argument, which I think is a bunch of crap. But that is to say that there is, he believes that testosterone and evolutionarily uh, men, you know, responding through hunter gatherer situations leads to men's behavior Mm -hmm. being fundamentally different. You look at boys at the age of three and they're crying much more. They they have much more emotive, uh, you know, capability than young girls do often as well. Mm -hmm. So, you watch it restrict Judy Chu. One of my colleagues followed a number of boys throughout preschool, um, and started to see that restriction actually take place before her very eyes as a socialized um, kind of, um, exactly, thing. exactly. Yeah. Um, so I think that we really need to start to understand that we can have both. We don't need to move towards something else we can just incorporate. I think it's a matter of, and rather than, or, Right. Um, and so when it comes to, though, the idea of, of toxic masculinity or healthy masculinity or positive masculinity, whatever it may be, fragile, you know, I did, I did a, an ethics debate around fragile masculinity. And, and I, I really made it very clear that I think that that's a great term mm-hmm. because I think that the whole idea about masculinity needs a rebranding. And that is that fragile masculinity should be seen as a great positive Everything that is fragile is beautiful. Everything that is fragile is respected mm-hmm. um, and is and sought and precious. Exactly. And feminism in the 1960s, 70s and 80s sought to seek out the fragility of femininity. That's mm. what it did. It sought to go, what are the pressure points here? What, what is this thing? And I think we're at a reckoning of masculinity now where we are going to go, what is underlying these cracks here? And how can we actually start to inhabit that space and understand it because it has been too long of see no evil, speak no evil, you know, that, that with, you know, Harvey Weinstein has, has cracked this open for everybody. And hopefully we're going to realize that this is to, to our great benefit over time.
0: Yeah. The use of the word fragility reminds me of the Japanese art form Kintsugi, which means gold joinery. It's a form of pottery repair where broken ceramics or fragile objects are knitted back together with gold bonding material. And in that sense, they actually become more beautiful, more precious. And I think this is a lovely image for thinking about men and vulnerability and fragility, especially when it comes to things like mental health.
1: It's lovely. And that is the idea of, of restoration. What I think that the you know, the Me Too movement should be focusing on is the fact that those men who are doing you know, despicable things are not fragile. They're not the fragile no. men. No. That the fragility is in the people who are aware and willing to look at their their, you know, weaknesses and yes. look, look at what is underlying those and, and seek self-betterment. That's masculinity yeah. and that's fragility and that's what we're aiming for.
0: So I'd like to change tack a little to focus on the themes of mental health and social connection in the time of coronavirus, the global pandemic which has disrupted the way of life of billions around the globe. So our new normal seems to be one of social isolation social distancing, and self-quarantine, coupled with extreme anxiety about the economic future of our countries and households, as well as existential anxiety about the health and well-being of loved ones and humanity at large. So there's a lot to unpack in there, but what are your thoughts broadly on the pandemic and its implications for mental health and well-being in Australia?
1: Mm. Well, as I said before, I've I've noticed a, a, a shift in my own... Mental well-being. I've never, I've never been one to be overwhelmed by the media or overwhelmed by reading anything at all. And um, I, the past, you know, couple of days, I've just been like, "Nah, I'm done with this. I can't." Tuning out, yeah, yeah. It's 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 too much. I, I, as I, I think I heard John Mayer actually, of all people, say, "It's you know, reading reading this um, splintering of the news is like being reminded not only that your favorite ice cream store has closed down, but that." Chocolate, salted caramel, <clears throat> strawberry, vanilla—every one of the flavors is yeah. gone, yeah. <laughs> and that we're reminded of that every day, and it's exhausting. So I think that um, one thing, while we're on the masculinity train, um, to, to remember—and for, for all the listeners out there—that yeah. um, there, there is <laughs> ten subscribers, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> there is something to be said for the way that uh, masculinity interacts with health behaviors is really, really problematic. And we're mm-hmm. seeing that in the fact that men are dying much more readily from this illness than women are. Um, yeah. There is a reliable trend of men dying more often, to, even if uh, women are diagnosed mm-hmm. at the same rates. So it comes down to the fact that um I think women are much better at, firstly, at communicating, obviously, when it comes mm-hmm. to some of these issues. And secondly, um, the lackadaisical um, response that many of the men in my life that I've witnessed, um, you know, the the slapping and the high fiving and the lack of, you know, there is plenty of evidence to show that men do not wash their hands. Mm-hmm. So I think that um, to, to all the men out there, I think it is, it is about time that we realize that um, altruism is an incredible male trait that we should all be looking to, um, include in our, in our, um, current, uh, climate.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Just on that notion of altruism and traditional values, I skipped over this question before, but it might be good to link back into now. So you write and speak a lot about stoicism, um, vis-a-vis mental health and societal attitudes towards the notion of masculinity or manhood. But what kinds of philosophical or historical trends or works informed our conventional understandings and stereotypes about masculinity uh, which we've established can be quite restrictive or circumscribing
1: what's really interesting is that stoicism obviously stems from the philosophers in ancient Greece back in the day mm. uh, back in the day <laughs> when i was a wee boy um, <laughs> and um and i think that it it uh it died off. Like it obviously went through some kind of, um, uh, s- s- renaissance, you know, th- throughout time it's, it's been picked up by various people over time. But I think really the way that stoicism has been um, repackaged is not what was intended. Um, mm-hmm. and we're looking at it now, uh, through an industrial revolution lens, um, in many ways, an American industrial revolution lens. That's yeah. what traditional masculinity is now. We're stuck with 1930s masculinity. That's what the stereotype is. That's what we're breaking. Like stiff upper um,
0: lip capacity for suffering. Precisely. That's what, yeah, that's not what,
1: yeah, that's not what stoicism was meant to be. Mm. You know? yeah. It was meant to be a respect um, for your circumstance, I guess, mm-hmm. if anything, um, and an understanding of your own limits. Yeah. Um,
0: and impermanence and kind of ultimately like, you know, non importance in the grand universal scheme things, right? Like microsurveillances, meditations. Yeah.
1: And- where did we lose that existential, you know, understanding of of where we're placed and, and get get mm-hmm. lost in this selfish um me, me, me idea of stoicism, which is I don't this it's and I really do believe it's underpinned often by um, you know, self and societal stigma, which is to say that it goes I am not going to be seen as weak or vulnerable by others because I will be shunned. Um, And so it doesn't even take on that altruistic trend, which I think it really was um, founded with in in mind. And now it's, it's really gone towards a fear. The stoicism Mm -hmm. is underpinned by fear. And so my whole idea around reframing masculinity in treatment or in my research is to say that, this is not something that should be weighing you down. It should be something that is a superpower. Mm. Um, and how can you shift these values that you carry around to be beneficial for yourself and society rather than um, limiting?
0: So coming back to the, the subject of men's mental health and the extraordinarily high rate of suicide amongst men, um, but thinking on those communities around Australia who have been affected by the triple whammy of drought for many years, now bushfires and obviously now a, an unprecedented global pandemic, what's the importance of social connection in these difficult times to maintain mental wellbeing and resilience?
1: I'm really worried about um, how things are going to go this year. I I, I believe, um, and this could just be the um, pessimist within me, that we're going to see a, a really frightening spike in the suicide rates. Mm. Um, the, the climate when it comes to... Um, risk factors for ma- male suicide. It's often thought that distress and mental illness are actually, you know, the the underlying main cause of suicide in men. It's actually situational factors right. like un- unemployment, financial distress, yes. um, social dislocation and relationship breakdown. This yeah. is prime time for all of those things. Um, mm-hmm. And so I really, really caution everybody to be on high alert for um anybody that seems to be and this is a hard thing that if we're actually you know if we go into lockdown it's very hard to to make sure that we can um connect with those in our lives who might be at risk but i think the fact that there is a camaraderie here the fact that Mm -hmm. there is a global camaraderie and that this is some really fucked up social experiment of sorts Mm -hmm. means that um this isn't this kind of gets rid of the marginalization, I hope in many ways yes. because it places the most privileged in a very similar situation yeah. um, and hopefully that will mean that the um, that type of hierarchy I guess when it comes to people talking to lots of people and, and leaving others out um, is going to die off and we're going to be able to see a new kind of mateship in many ways grow out of this.
0: Two points of encouragement for me have been that this is a common global problem we're all facing that every country on earth is united or ought to be uh, in solving this together and secondly in some ways um, we've become more united as neighbors citizens and human beings there's been a proliferation of online community support groups on facebook people checking in on neighbors reconnecting with old friends and family so i think we need to hold on to those positive stories when we do think how difficult these times are and will be
1: yeah catastrophe breeds humanity Mm. I think. And I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing, you know, and that we saw that with the bushfires and then we've, you know, and ScoMo loves to, to point out now the fact that everybody is just going and hoarding and what's wrong with all of you. But I think that there are, besides that horrible behavior, there are, there is very clear underlying benefits um, to the connectedness that is taking place now.
0: So what kinds of practical things can we be doing to foster a sense of social connection during these moments of social isolation or even lockdown? when all the simple things we took for granted are unavailable to us, such as, you know, having coffee with friends or, um, going to the gym for instance, and, and seeing people.
1: I think the key is firstly to not, um, reveal in the what if situation, um, mm. and, and to not really get lost in that, Oh, I've lost this. And I've, and start to list all those things. People tend to do that. You know, my, my brother's wedding is canceled. It's, mm, it's, yeah. it's, yeah, it's really, it's, you know, it's, horribly upsetting, but, um, there is a sense of, uh, solace, I guess, in some ways, just around the fact that there is, you know, so many others going through the, yeah. the same thing. So I think when it comes to practical tips, what I've been doing is I, um, I've been doing three 15 minute, um, times a day, just getting my heart rate up. Um, right. l- let's be very clear. The evidence, um, suggests by all, um, measures that, that exercise is the best answer to your low mood. Um, so, um, that's always been very useful for me and, and has been, um, good to just keep my mind active. So I've been scheduling that in. I've also been doing, um, uh, meditation morning and night. It's, Mm -hmm. it's weird because I can, I'm in control now and everyone should realize that as, as much, you know, everyone complains about going to work and now everyone complains about not going to work. Um, mm. but there is, there is something to be said for the fact that you're in control now of your days. So mm. I think that, um, structuring things, uh, purposefully yeah. is going to be really good. And I've been doing really dumb zoom calls with heaps of people. Mm. And me included. On, yeah, <laughs> we don't have, we don't have a fun background on, I've been wearing my speed dealer glasses for most of my <laughs> zoom calls, which I'm thoroughly enjoying.
0: Great. Just linking back to the opening uh, part of our conversation today. How do you think the social and health systems will permanently change as a result of our need to rely on digital technologies to both work and socialize? So we're already seeing really significant changes, um, such as you know, discussion about the Medicare benefit schedule being ex- expanded to include telehealth services uh, for general practitioners and psychologists, uh, but also huge numbers of people are working from home, as we've discussed, and you know the normalization of virtual social catch-ups such as you know friday drinks over zoom for instance
1: mm. oh it's a weird time isn't it i said mm. that to my brother before and he was like everyone just keeps saying that i was like yeah, yeah i know it doesn't like really a, mean
0: it's like a bad black mirror episode honestly it is it like, is yeah, but the word weird get off. Yeah.
1: yeah the word weird doesn't actually mean anything i always say that to clients when clients come in and i'm like how are you feeling they go weird I'm like, Mm -hmm. I don't, I literally don't know what that means. It means anything to everyone. Mm -hmm. So that guess that's why everyone's saying it because we're all in this state of limbo. Um, but I think that, um, really this is going to be, I'm, I'm very, very privileged and I've made that clear to everyone, no matter how, you know, pissy I might be on a certain day, I know that I'm in the best possible position right now when it comes to, um, Firstly, my job security. You know, I know so many people out there who are freaking out, and yep. I and I send my condolences to them because this is mm. this is frightening. Um, yep. and, and but I but I really do think that the healthcare space is going to learn a lot in the coming months, um, and is going to benefit a lot um, because we were moving archaically, <laughs> really slowly towards um, telehealth movements. We were moving towards understanding online um, education as well. Um, yep you know, all of that stuff has now been fast tracked uh, Mm. through necessity. And I think that that is going to be something that um, everyone benefits from in the long term. So there are going to be some gains here, I really do think. And there is a silver lining in many ways. Mm. Lots of people will get sick and lots of people will die. And that's, you know, horrific, but hopefully we can find something out of this that is going to move society forward and I think when it comes to telehealth when it comes to the fact that the government is willing to support mental health services um, you know not only for people in regional areas but now for anybody anywhere to be able to contact a psychologist we need to break down barriers and get people in and
0: talking. And finally putting coronavirus to one side what kinds of things do you do to keep happy and healthy in your daily or weekly routine? I just love to do Zoom podcasts. It's my favorite thing. (laughs) Oh, you work when your time. (laughs) We'll just chat. Start your own. Record. Yeah,
1: Yeah, sure. Mm. But um, I the ocean is my is my respite. I um, despite moving to Melbourne and people thinking I'm insane for swimming here, (laughs) I I I typically swim here every day. And um, the the cold water therapy um really does wonders for me. Um, running as well, movement, progress. I I really align them in many ways. Um. And then I play drums as well to just yeah. exert some some other energy, and it's the only time where my brain does something and is not at all engaged. It just relies on some lizard nice. brain situation. Yeah, and then just chatting with mates is always enlivening in many ways, and finding finding your tribe that has very similar values and um, and and interests to you um, mm-hmm. really you know gets me up in the morning.
0: Yeah, fantastic. Well, Dr. Zack Seidler, it's been a pleasure talking with you today and thank you so much for your time and for being part of Bloom's very first um, podcast via Zoom.
1: So thank you. My pleasure, Nick.